The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, it's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here. Welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. It's just a note to say that if you're hearing this, then you are not currently on our patron programme and will only be hearing the first part of each show. In order to access full episodes of the Tudor History and Travel Show podcast, you will need to become a patron of the show via the show's homepage at thetudortravelshow.podbean.com. There you will find information relating to various different levels of sponsorship with different perks associated with each. But access to all the usual shows of my podcast in their entirety is included in the entry level, which is just $1 a month. We don't run ads on the podcast, so it is made entirely possible by the support of our patrons. So if you enjoy what we're doing here, please consider becoming one. Well, we only have one bit of housekeeping to attend to before we can get straight on with the meat of today's podcast. If you are a lover of historical fiction, then this is for you, my friends, because in case you missed it, on the anniversary of Anne Boleyn's execution, the 19th of May, I formally launched the audiobook of volume two of Le Ton Viendre, a novel of Anne Boleyn. Yes, this was my baby, my first book, which I began writing in 2010 and published in 2012 and 13. It is in two volumes. And of course, it tells the story of Anne Boleyn's innocence through the eyes of a modern day historical heroine who is drawn back in time and finds herself in the body of Anne Boleyn herself and witnesses firsthand the love, passion and betrayal that leads her eventually to her fate upon the scaffold. Oh my goodness, this is a book that's close to my heart and I spent so much time delving into the detail of what life was like at the Tudor court. I found myself deep in Anne's body experiencing all the crazy tumult of emotions which she must have experienced in her love affair with Henry. It was, in fact, my coming out. This was when I first began to share my passion for the Tudors online. And of course, one thing has led to another. Other books would follow and eventually the Tudor Travel Guide, which came from my love of Tudor buildings and Tudor places, which was very much nurtured through the research process of writing Le Ton Viendre. And this month, in fact, on the 15th of August... I am delighted, if not a little surprised, to say that it is the 10th anniversary of the first publication of the first volume of LTV. And of course, I couldn't let that pass without a little celebration. 
I'll be doing one or two things over on social media to um, celebrate the day, uh, including a publication of a chapter or part of a chapter from LTV Volume 2. And I'm also going to do a live over on my YouTube channel sometime in the middle of August. So make sure that you are subscribed to my blog via the homepage at www.thetudortravelguide.com and I'll be sending any significant notices of things that are coming up out to my email list. And one final thing, how could I not on this very special month donate a copy of both Le Ton Viandre Volume 1 and 2 as part of my giveaway for my patron programme. So if you are sponsoring the patron programme at over $5 or more a month, then you will be eligible to be entered into the draw for this month's patron gift, which of course I will announce at the end of this month. Okay, well, it is now time to get on with our adventure du jour. And I was really excited to head down to Sussex and to visit the Weald and Downland Museum. It's a museum that I've heard so much about and was so keen to visit because I very often get emails from people or messages on social media saying, I love learning about the aristocrats and the palaces, but what about the ordinary Tudor people? Tell me more about the ordinary Tudor people and the places in which they lived. Well, there's no finer place to do that than the Weald and Downland Museum. Now, I will let our guide today, John Roberts, tell you all about the museum and its purpose and what you can hope to find there. In this particular podcast, you're going to be finding out all about a typical medieval hall house. That's H-A-L-L. I didn't want any ambiguity in there. Uh, from our guide. Now, a hall house was first built during the medieval period, but it was a typical kind of house that persisted into the 16th century. So it's very much relevant to our period. And you'll be hearing about the house, its construction, about the spaces and how it was used and the kind, the level and the status of the person who would have owned such a house. So strap yourself in, my friends, because we're about to go time travelling and we're travelling right into the heart of ordinary Tudor England. So hello everyone, welcome to the Weald and Downland Museum. This is my first time here. So as you can imagine, I'm incredibly excited to be here because it's a place I have wanted to come to for such a long time, not least because it's just full of gorgeous historic buildings, medieval Tudor buildings and, and others. But of course, our attention as ever will be on some of the Tudor buildings that are here at the museum. Now, the Weald and Downland Museum is in a part of England, southern England called uh, Downland. It's close to the South Downs and it's a beautiful area of the countryside uh, full of glorious rolling hills and dotted with woodland and copses and, and other kind of open bracken land. It's a really beautiful place. So I am now joined by our very special guest for today. Uh, hello John, welcome to the Tudor History and Travel Show. Hi Sarah. So thank you for joining us today and being our guide in this fantastic museum. I just say for those people listening in, you may hear some sound of wind in the background because I think we've picked a morning where there's a howling gale going on but thankfully the sun is out. So 
John, before we get into talking about these amazing places, maybe you could just introduce yourself and tell us what you do here. Yes, my name's John Roberts and uh, my job title is Rural Life Interpreter. So I have to explain to the visitors the working life of the countryside over the past, well, for about a thousand years. Oh, from wow. late Saxon through to the early 20th century. Oh gosh, so you really do have to cover a huge period of history. Um, but we're going to get you to focus in on quite a narrow a narrow part of that history, of course, Tudor history today. Um, so you've been here, you were telling me before we hit the record button, you've been here for, what, 35 years? That's right, yes. Wow, so what you don't know about this place, I guess, is not worth knowing. Oh, you're still learning all the time. And his, history moves on as interpretations change and more evidence comes to light. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we start exploring some of the buildings, maybe you could just tell us about the museum, how it ca- what it is, how you describe it, how it came into being and what it's here for. Well, it first opened in 1970, but had been founded five years before that. And it was fa- founded as a last refuge for vernacular, ordinary people's buildings, not just houses, but workshops and farm buildings. Because in the wake of post-war redevelopment with lots of bits of the country having been knocked down and an ageing building stock, the buildings of the ordinary people were being swept away Mm. um, with new town development and the like and uh, a chap called Roy Armstrong with a group of volunteers that he'd been working with with uh, Workers Educational Association and uh, the Wilden Building Study Group Mm. realised that there was actually a prospect that all of these buildings could be lost and he wanted to save a few examples. So all the buildings that we take here, they have to have no future on their original site because Roy believed that they lost 99% of their story once you moved them. They have to be something we don't have to have an example of already and also they have to be from the Weald and Downland area. Okay, so all local to here. And the museum itself, how, how, what area does it cover and how many buildings do you have on site roughly? Uh, it covers about 50 acres and we've, we've got above, above 50 structures now. Okay. But they range from quite small. Ah, yes, yes, we've passed a few of those little, what would you call some of the smaller places? Well, we've got uh, workshops and cattle sheds and um, living vans. And up to the grander buildings, which would have been what, merchants' houses or what, what would, how would you describe those? Well, Bayleaf House, which we're going to talk about, is probably about as high up the social scale as we go. Okay, right. So, the top of the peasantry. Ah, the top of the peasantry. And I know there are many of you out there um, who, who email me regularly and ask me about, you know, what was ordinary Tudor life like? So, I was really keen to come down here, and that's what we're going to be exploring today. So, um, I think maybe we should take a look at our first building. Okay, yeah. So John, you've brought me up from the sort of the ticket area through part of the museum and we've arrived at what I would describe as a timber-framed kind of wattle and daub house called Bailey Farm. Now, is that a reasonable description for this building? It is, yes. This is a medieval timber-framed hall house, which may seem odd as you want to talk about the Tudors, (laughs) but this is how it looks at the beginning of the 1500s. Right, so just as we're... And I think you were also saying that this is the kind of house that would have um, continued through the Tudor period, so it would be be typical of its type through through that era, through the 16th century as well? Yes, how ordinary people design their houses changes through the 1500s and into the the early 1600s. Um, And these changes are 
pushed by economic changes, social changes, um, not just technology, which is how a modern person always wants to see all change. Okay, well maybe you could describe a little bit about that. First of all, just describe for us what we can actually see, and then maybe you could talk a little bit about those changes and how houses developed from the sort of the 15th through to the end of the 16th century. Right, well what we have in front of us is about the best lifestyle you could probably hope for as anyone below gentry level. This is a yeoman farmer's house. But it is a classic late medieval building. It has an open hall in the centre, open because there is no first floor. Yep. And your heating system is a fire not quite in the middle of the floor. So you need that space to let your smoke disperse. Then at either end, you do have an upper floor. Yes, I and can then, see that. And this particular building, which is a type called a Wealdon, it is jetted, it projects over the front. And is there a reason for that? Is that just to make the upper floor space bigger or was there another reason why that was built in that fashion? Well, we have to post-rationalise a bit here, which is always a dangerous thing to do. <laughs> we think jettying did develop in towns where you had a restricted building site and you could gain more floor area by extending over the street. But the tenant living in this building had a very large farm. If he wanted more floor area, he could have just made the whole house bigger. So we think it's status. Oh, so just like a, a really nice architectural feature that says something about, look, yes. I can have these wonderful kind of wooden beams and, and, and so on projecting from the house. Yes, and we, we think that's, uh, our view of this is reinforced by the fact that it's jetted at the front and it's jetted at one end, but not the other. Oh, so and the end that it's jetted was the end that pointed towards the track that went by it. The street, where yes. it would be seen by the passers-by. Yeah, okay, that's really interesting. Now, do you know who lived here? Do, do we have any records of its, its history, this particular building? Well, finding records for vernacular building, buildings of the ordinary people, is um, haphazard, really. You have to get strike lucky. And uh, we are quite lucky with this house because it had a name. Now, we call it Bayleaf House. It's a corruption of its original name because we think it was built either by or for a chap called Henry Bailey, somewhere between about 1405 and 1430. Right. So it was Bailey's house. Oh, I see, yeah. And then over time, it's been corrupted to Bayleaf. And you find it spelled all sorts of different ways in documents. And so he was a farmer, essentially. We know very little about him because from what we can tell, he died soon after the house was built. And we only start to know, we know who lived in here throughout this period, but we only start to know a lot about the families from about the 1560s onwards. I see. And what about the later family? What do we know of them? I'm just so curious because, you know, it's the people who live here that bring these buildings to life, isn't it? There's the stories that I think you talked about before. Well, it was lived in by a chap called Thomas Wells. And in documents, he's described in three different ways, in different documents. He's described as a yeoman, a carpenter, and a farmer. Is that unusual? Because they seem like quite different occupations to me. Um, well, yeoman sort of shows his place in society. Uh, it's not a class because our class system doesn't really develop until the 1700s as we understand it. Right. 
but they're a particular level of the te of tenant farmers right at the top. Okay, and actually, look, while we're here, there will be a lot of people listening to this who don't know what kind of levels of Tudor society, you know, can you describe them right down from the peasants upwards? Can you give us a feel for particularly the so-called ordinary folk, not necessarily the arist aristocratic classes? Uh, well, the late Tudors are actually starting to write down descriptions of how society is divided up. So at the very top, you have the aristocracy, who are the super rich of their day, mostly. Then below them is the, the gentry. And the key elements of you know, both these sections of society is they own land. They own the freehold to land. Below that, you are generally renting your land. You're a tenant. Right. And the key thing about being gentry is you make your money from rents not from the sweat of your brow. <laughs> yes. yeah, I get but, it. <laughs> but within every, every section of this society, there, there are different levels of this. So at the very bottom are you know, the criminals, the insane. Um, then you've got the, what later sort of get called the deserving poor, who are sort of destitute for no fault of their own. Uh -huh. Then the labourers. Then husbandmen, which we might term as smallholders or subsistence farmers, um, who probably also supplement their income by labouring for people like the I tenants see. of Bayleaf. I see. So this guy would be renting his land. Did he then sublet it then to the husbandmen, for example? How did they rent their land? No, he didn't. Um, of, often um, husbandmen are, are renting directly from the landowner. Uh, subletting does occur a lot and it gets more and more common and uh, it makes a nightmare of trying to pick out who's actually living in somewhere. Uh, but strictly speaking, it wasn't legal. Okay, right. Under okay. most uh, landlords. Now, I'm aware that about five, ten minutes ago, I asked you a question about how houses evolved from the 15th to the 16th century and you started beautifully to describe what we see in front of us now. But could you then just forward wind that story and talk about how kind of ordinary houses developed and, and why they did so? Uh, I can try. Okay, go for it. It's still a contentious oh, issue. Oh, okay, or okay. But what happens, probably for most ordinary people from about the middle of the 1500s onwards, is they start to change their house design. And the biggest innovation, we'll call it, is putting in a chimney. Uh-huh, <laughs> And once you install a chimney, you can have a first floor all the way across because you don't need that open space to let the fire, um, smoke from the fire disperse. It's so obvious when you say it, John. <laughs> and you lose the big central room, the hall. But it enables you to have more rooms. So rooms tend to go from being multifunctional to unifunctional in um, essence anyway. Uh, I think the practicality was a bit different, but... Uh, but that was the movement so towards... That, that was the movement. And it's probably pushed a bit by changing society above this level. So if you're a medieval king, it's very, very important that you're visible. So, you know, sitting in your great hall behind the table going, I'm the king, going on your tours around the country going, I'm the king. Mm -hmm. yes. As you go through the Tudor period, you then start to show your importance by being inaccessible. 
So you get these big palaces where, um, where you famously get Elizabeth I receiving her most favoured courtiers in her bedchamber. And this is all about this sort of progression through a series of rooms to show how powerful you are and how far you get shows how important you are. Yeah, right. Um, now, I'm not saying this goes all the way down society, but there is more of a push maybe for privacy and then separating out the functions of your rooms helps this. Yeah. So there is, the, you know, uh, normal people are picking up on trends set by the well-to-do, which is, of course, what happens today. Exactly, yes. yes. Humans don't change in essence. No, they don't. Um, and you're also getting uh, new, in big inverted commas, building material, brick. Right. Starts to be introduced. So what was the impact? So tell me about, actually, that's a good point, John. So we talked about this being timber framed, with, and the timber frame is infilled with this wattle and daub. So what is wattle and daub? Let's get that definition down. Right. Well, wattle um, is a lattice work of sticks, essentially. It's, uh, there are various forms of it. Some, sometimes it's cleft sticks nailed to upright, sometimes it's woven, can be made out of a range of materials. This one here, it's woven hazel. Uh, then that's covered with uh, early form of plaster, really, daub. Now, there's not a recipe for daub. Okay. It's basically mud and chopped up straw or chopped up vegetation okay. to bind it all together. Sometimes it has animal dung in it, sometimes it has other additives like lime, but when we've analysed it from our buildings, it's very obvious it comes from the local area. So you probably just dug it out from the building site. So, I mean, it amazes me, Daub, that it's got such durability. Did it have to be replaced regularly or does it really, you know, is it very resilient and resistant to the effects of the weather? If it's kept um, water resistant by lime washing it. Ah, which is what we have which here. Which we have on the outside, that's why it's bright white. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is the colour. Uh, this is a, you know, an accurate mix. People tend to think that everything will be you know, brownie colour, particularly film companies. <laughs> but that's how it stays because it's very, very good at suppressing the growth of stuff on it. Ah, yeah, great. Um, some, sometimes it was coloured. There's evidence of some pink and yellow. Well, you raise a good point because as I was driving here, I was talking to my sound man, Chris, and, we, and I was saying, because we go to Suffolk a lot, and of course, if people go to Suffolk, they'll be very aware of the Suffolk pink houses. It's kind of a hallmark of the county. And I was saying, is there a particular architectural feature of kind of Sussex of this area? So you're the best man to ask. Um, not in that, that same way. There's, there's more and more evidence coming to light that timbers were quite often painted, but never black. That's, yeah. well, in this area, that's a you know, late Victorian Edwardian thing uh -huh. for, of the, the stockbroker Tudor look. Okay. Um, <laughs> yes. But uh, you know, red and yellow ochre. And we do have one building which we have painted the timbers red because we have conclusive evidence because there was paint in areas you couldn't get to once you put the house up. Right, okay. So we yeah. know it was painted yeah, from was first. Yeah. Right, okay, great. So before we go inside and maybe explore the interior of the building, John, are there any other misconceptions about the construction or the style of these buildings that you need to point out to us from the outside? Uh, well, we often get, get asked, uh, wasn't it originally thatched? Mm. And the answer is almost certainly no. Um, tiles become, particularly in the eastern counties, very common from about 1200 onwards. And we have 
have written evidence of things like pigsties being tiled in the 1200s. Wow, I had no idea it was so early. Crikey, that's, that's amazing. But brick, of course, came in in the 16th, late 15th century, early 16th century, for the aristocracy at least. Yes, I mean, it's starting to come in mid-15th century. Uh, we never really completely stopped making bricks. We just stopped using them for building structures out of after the Romans went home. So, so why was that, do you think? Any, um, any evidence for...? Well, the Germanic peoples coming in were great woodworkers. OK. So, so yeah. Why would you? Okay. <laughs> yes, yes. Interesting. Um, they did, there's more evidence coming to light of them doing tile making, but it tends to be th for things like hearths and um, ovens and right. the like. And we may be straying a little bit off topic here, but since we are talking about brick and I'm interested in it, what was the impetus for brick coming back in, resurfacing as a popular building material? Um, again, we probably don't really know. Um, but possibly it's fuelled by Renaissance ideas where you're start, they're starting to look back to the classical age and the regularity of Greek architecture, which you can't achieve with timber. I see. Whereas brick is a completely regular material, and when you build something like Hurstmanso Castle or the, mm. in, the, in the extreme case um, Hampton Court Palace, you can make everything regular and symmetrical. I see. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's a very good answer. And this may actually be confirmed by what we see happening in ordinary people's buildings when they build out of brick, in that they're not generally buying the best quality, they're buying seconds, which are irregular. So there's this practice called pencilling and rattling, or rattling and pencilling. Oh, explain. You, you fill up the mortar joints so they're flush with the front of the brickwork, with these rather irregular bricks, paint the whole thing red, and then paint in lines. Ah, yes. To give you regular brickwork. Yeah, so, so you're saying really that it was very fashionable and yes. that would make sense as to yes. why it was adopted again by those at the highest part of society and then everybody yes. else tried to replicate that. It's driven by fashion, not technology. Yeah, right, okay. Well, I think that's a great introduction to the outside of this house, so I think we need to go inside and explore inside, so why don't we go? listening to the first part of this month's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. The remainder of this episode is available to patrons only. To become a patron of the show, head over to my Podbean homepage and you can find the Become a Patron button in the top right-hand corner. Alternatively, you can find a direct link to Become a Patron in the text associated with this podcast. Thanks for listening, my friends, and I'll see you in the Tudor Sphere again soon. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. <laughs> <laughs>